Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. invite you to open a Bible to the Old Testament and to the book of Malachi. So if you're just joining in with us, maybe visiting for the first time, this is actually week 18, the last week of a series that we've been doing called Little Books, Big Messages, where we have attempted, done our best by God's help, to cover several minor prophets, uh, beginning with Obadiah, and then it was Jonah, and then it was Nahum. And then it was, anyone know? Remember? It's a forgettable sermon series, (laughs) apparently. Yeah. Zephaniah, (laughs) Haggai, and Malachi. And that's where we are. And if you're using one of our uh, little blue Bibles, it's on page 468, chapter 4. Chapter 4, just six verses this morning. So here we go. Malachi 4, beginning in verse 1, the biblical author writes, Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. Uh, The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so closes the prophetic voice of the Old Testament until all of a sudden we come to the Gospels in the New Testament. So let's pray together. Oh, Lord. We thank you so much for uh, the privilege it is to gather, to gather together to be under your word. And I do pray that you would do that now, that you would give the Holy Spirit and that you would set our hearts under the word, that we would not act in arrogance, that we would not put ourselves over the word of God, but we would gladly, delightfully put ourselves under the ministry of the Holy Spirit and under the ministry of your word, and that you would make for yourself a righteous people who have so very much to look forward to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm a moderately sized football fan, particularly college football, although I love fantasy football, which tends to be NFL, but that's another thing to talk about sometime later. This past week was what they call week zero. If you don't know what week zero is, that is the first week of college football. It's the unofficial first week of college football. And around these parts, that means that it's time to begin to reminisce about, say, I don't know, like early January 2017, Watson to Renfro, 4-13, to one second left on the clock, and a national title. In that moment, half of the stadium, clad in orange and purple, erupted, right, with elation, 
You've been in the football wilderness for 30 some odd years, 40 years, whatever it's been, and now delivered. Okay? While same moment, the other half fell in utter deflation. Our lives are over. <laughs> to borrow the immortal words of Charles Dickens and apply them rather trivially, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times at the very same time. What I'm trying to illustrate in all of that is something of the truth of our text today, that there is coming a day where the same event will produce directly opposite responses, results. For some, it is going to be the very best day. While for others, it's going to be the very worst day. And here's the thing. This event that our text is talking about, this event is, is ultimate. Not Clemson, Alabama. This event is ultimate. This day is universal. It's unavoidable. It's going to envelop each one of us here this morning. It's going to come upon every person that God ever created but then how it comes upon us will differ from one person to another. Do you know this morning what will make all the difference between it being the very best day for you or the very worst day? Do you know on which side of things you are going to be? Are you readying yourself? Are you preparing for that day? Because the thing is, is that Christ has already come. He's already come once. And what we see in the Bible is that Christ is coming again, and those who will be ready for it and find it to be purest joy are those who prove a justifying faith by actually following Jesus all the way to the end. Nothing else is going to pass the smell test of the righteous one who's coming to commend his life in the soul of people. If you're going to be His, distinctly His, on that day, can you or I be anything else, dear ones, all the way to that day? Let's come to our text and think first on this coming day of the Lord with respect to the wicked. And as we do, I think it's important we remember the heart behind the hell. The heart behind the hell. Uh, we saw it in Jonah, uh, but the Lord is quite able to speak judgment to a people and in love save those very people by that word of judgment. The people can be brought to heaven by a divine promise of hell. If you don't repent, judgment. God can save people through that. So here, coming from chapter 3 into our chapter 4, if you haven't yet, God is trying to persuade you to step out from among the ungodly of the world, the ungodly in Israel, in fact, and put your name in the book, right? Sign up in His book of those who love Him and who are going to live for Him. He would have His love for sinners win your love for Him. So let's get into it and ask first, who are the wicked? Who are the wicked? As you hear that term, maybe you cringe a little bit. Kind of crawls up your skin. The wicked. Right? Perhaps you think that's Harsh language. This culture of tolerance with its preaching, and it does have preaching, of moral relativity has made its mark on you. You don't really know it, but it's, it's done something there. Or maybe you think of really awful characters, right? Your mind, you think wicked, and your mind runs immediately to, to characters like Hitler, or maybe you think of the Gerasene demoniac, who, by the way, Jesus 
saved. Maybe you think about uh, a terrorist to the early church, a guy named Paul. <laughs> uh, or maybe you think about like a tripped out New Age witch or, or warlock or whatever. That's not really what Malachi has been doing, is it? When he talks about the wicked. What about faithful temple goers? What about the person in the pew or in the chairs each and every week who yet dismiss the Word of God and aside from church attendance live lives indistinct from anyone else in the world? What about them? What about the arrogant, evildoer who's nevertheless dressed up in their Sunday's finest? Because that's the person Malachi is talking about. The Bible emphasizes this over and over again. You cannot get away with, from it. You go to the Gospels, you spend some time with Jesus, you see this all over the place. So we need to get it. The wicked can be both prodigal, what we might normally think of, but also pharisaical, which we might not. The wicked in Malachi are not uh, child-sacrificing pagans from all the other nations only. It's people who have been loved by God only to go on and be lukewarm. It's people who have heard and seen His grace, His gospel favor, only to go on and question it. It's people who have come to the altar, but with offerings that show they value their kingdoms over God's kingdom. It's people, if instructed by the word at all, have chosen to live as they please and not as God would be pleased. It's people who, though raised in the hope of Christ, the hope of Messiah, allow none of Messiah in their marriages, and we've seen this in Malachi, in their marriages or in their families or in their communities of faith. Quote, unquote. It's people in the temple, which we saw a week ago, who the Lord knows, maybe nobody else does, but the Lord knows to be adulterers, liars, cheaters, oppressors, deceivers, thieves, and worldly malcontents. It's priests. It's pastors who shirking their biblical duties still really appreciate their paycheck. When we think of the wicked, people presently under this incendiary indignation of God. We have to have a category for very religious people or very ritualistic people who do not know or love or live for the Lord according to the truth of His Word. They're very religious. They're very ritualistic, but they're in no way righteous, and there's a difference. They're arrogant, and as arrogant, they stand over the Word of God. I'm not going to trust you there. And they're evil doing. Those things go together. You stand over the Word of God, you're going to be inclined to blend in rather nicely with the ungodly world. Arrogant, evil doers. And when Christ comes, some then are going to be set ablaze, according to the language of the text, okay? Some are going to be set ablaze who thought that they were safe. Do you see what his appearance will be like for those who have not truly taken refuge in Jesus Christ? God himself gives us the image. He says it'll be like an oven set on broil. And as the wicked, of whatever sort, implies a soul without spiritual life in it, they're likened to wood that has no green in it. They're likened to dry rot, they're likened to kindling, they're likened to stubble there in the text that quickly catches fire. We should probably see then, what is the fire starter? What is it that sets them ablaze? If they're the stubble, what or who is providing the flame? 
It's not just a certain day. It's the risen and manifest glory of the righteous one which that day brings. We're going to see him. So friends, yes, Jesus is the gentle and lowly Savior of sinners. But no, that does not nullify the fact that a major aspect of His glory as Messiah is judging the world in perfect righteousness. So if you're not in Christ on that day, Christ is going to distinguish you But he's going to distinguish you as an enemy to put under the penalty of the sins that you preferred over him and over the offer of his grace. And as you see him then, this righteous one, and as you see those who are clothed in him shining like the sun in righteousness, you will see the eternally consequential error that you have made. And that utterly then exposed by that glorious light, you're also going to see you have nothing to claim to save yourself. You're going to be without excuse. You'll see what you'll have wished you'd seen beforehand. You'll long with all you are for a way of escape, for yet another chance for the mercy of a rewinded clock. But the day, having now come, all that has gone away. It will all have passed away. You'll have no defense. You'll speak no words, it says. You'll see, and as you see, your eyes will flood with tears, and you will begin a weeping that will never come to an end. Divine justice will be applied to you, and you will have the wage of your sin. And that conscious torment will be it for you forever. So recall Israel in chapter 3, verse 15, chastising God for allowing the evil to what? Test him and escape. Or chapter 2, verse 17, where they clamored, where is the God of justice? He's not giving us the kind of life that we think He should give us. Where is He? And we said there, O sinner, be careful what you wish for. The day is coming. And see it in the verse, verse 1, it says, this word here, All the wicked, all the wicked will come to this. So not one is going to escape. Not one is going to be excused. And the fire will not devour everything and then rest and allow for some kind of regrowth, re-sprouting. That's not what's going to happen in this day. He's going to show up and in light of His glory, these folks are going to be devoured by justice. And it's going to smolder on from the inside, leaving no hope of a new beginning ever. That's going to be it. So, the idea of something like purgatory is not a thing. It's nowhere in the Bible. Once in this oven, the burning of it takes hold forever. Jesus says, Jesus says, it's an unquenchable fire. It's an everlasting hell, indeed. At least, at the very least, it's a punishment due the evil of one's sins without parole or a single drop of mercy to offset it. And so maybe you say, well, that's all imaginary. I don't believe in that. It's just an idle threat, an insubstantial tale, a religious coup. 
to maintain its power over the minds of men. It's opium for the masses. One could wish. But when God doubles down in a single verse like this, we need to pay attention. Behold, he says, twice in the one verse, the day is coming. It is coming. As certain as Christ has come once before to save sinners, he, having died on the cross and then been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, is going to come again to do all of this. He's coming a second time to finish what he started. And friend, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a bona fide Christian, that's not good news for you. What is good news for you is that this day has not come yet. So, you have some unknown amount of time, unknown amount of time to believe God to take Him at His Word. He's loving you right now by telling you from His Word, this day's coming, you need to turn. You can still be saved. He's loving you right now by giving you that time. If you don't entrust your soul to what Jesus suffered on the cross, your penalty is not just going to disappear. It must and it will be suffered. Justice demands it. And if not by Jesus, in your place, the only place God's wrath against you is going to land is upon your own head. So what Jesus suffered to save all who believe. If you don't believe, you will have to suffer yourself. To say that it will be the worst day for you is an understatement of epic proportions. But it will be the worst day for you. While the same day will be the best day for the righteous ones of Christ. So to that we come here. Picking up in verse 2. How do we know How do we know that a body in a casket is deceased? It's simple, really. It's not alive. There are no signs of life. In fact, just the opposite, there are signs of death. And this idea holds not just in the physical realm of things, but it holds in the spiritual realm of things as well. How do we know that a soul of a person is alive from the dead, alive to God, that one's really been united to Jesus and justified by faith in Jesus? Again, it's very simple. There are signs of new life. The person who lived under sin begins then to love God. What a change. They begin to love God And have the maturing look of one who keeps fellowship with Jesus. I think we can say they begin to practice righteousness. Malachi speaks of it in terms of fearing God. They begin to fear God. They begin to esteem Him, whatever the pressures of man may be, so that you begin to follow Him whichever other way people would have you to go. If you fear the Lord in life, you walk with Him, you practice righteousness, Malachi is saying you have nothing to fear on this day. In fact, on two accounts, it will be great and it will be awesome for you. In verse 2, Malachi says, the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing In its wings. Isn't that beautiful? I love the minor prophets. The prophets in general. They're so picturesque if you like that kind of thing. It's an image, if you can picture it, of righteousness as a great light cresting 
over the eternal horizon until it shines bright as noonday, and with it, in its wings, flies a healing. For every wound you have suffered for the sake of righteousness. So then it's not just any righteousness that's cresting here, nor just any healing. It's the righteousness of the risen, then returning Jesus. It's the righteousness of the righteous one. And we need to hear this morning, there's really only one man who never sinned. There's only one man who obeyed God to the full, perfectly. This righteousness, cresting on this day, is His righteousness. It's His glory. It's what the believer, now this is incredible, it's what the believer is already adorning or wearing before the eyes of God this hour. Can you believe that? Wow. You see, it's a great light. Like the sun for the earth, it's salvation for the godly. What I mean is what's implied by the sun's rising. Maybe you saw it this morning. Before the sun rises, all the world is what? Dark. And so here, the sun rising, this sun of righteousness rising, it's saying that the world is a dark place. Anyone who takes to Jesus, anyone who takes to the truth, anyone who takes to following Him to righteousness will find the world to be a dark place. And so much so that Jesus makes persecution as old as Cain and Abel an expectation of the Christian life. You cannot follow Jesus without taking up a cross. You cannot do it. I don't know how Jesus was offered to you or how you were invited to Him. He'll make your life so great. He'll make it so easy, so comfortable. Maybe that was it. I don't know. What we do know is that when Jesus offers Himself with invitation to sinners, it's always this. Take up your cross and follow me. That was the call to come. You didn't come to Jesus without taking up a cross every day. Jesus did not call you to forgiveness without a following. He did not call us to blessedness without a battle. He didn't call us to everlasting life without His hard and narrow path that leads to that life. Inherent to the new birth is a heart, as we see in the Apostle Paul, that is embracing his will, whatever the wounds may be, because we are smitten with his worth. It's worth it, whatever. How would you like to hear? How would you like to hear from Jesus what he said to Paul at Paul's conversion? I will show you how easy your life is going to be now that you're following me. No, this is what it says. I will show you how much you must suffer for my name. That's what he said. And having seen his great light, like a foretaste of what we're all going to see in that day, Paul is like, Yes, Lord, anything else I can do for you? Who died for me? Point being, righteousness can hurt. Or at least we can be hurt on account of righteousness. But on this day, when we see Jesus face to face, every wound, Every hurt, every battle scar, every tear we have ever cried in the path of righteousness. <laughs> every loss, every forfeiture, every death. From ridicule and betrayal to isolation and forsakenness and on then to beatings and martyrdoms. Or from going unnoticed 
for services rendered, leaving aged parents, sick and dying parents for the mission field and the glory of Christ there, doing all you must to conquer all the power of sin and temptation, okay? One ray of this light on that day will be enough to remedy every malady you have ever suffered for His sake. Its immortal application will heal every mortal blow that you have suffered. And as the day dawning a tearless world, is only drawing nearer. It's nearer now than when we first believed. Such recompense is already on the way. It's flying towards us. And with it, to press still further then, the righteous you see in verse 3 will come out on top. On this day, We will tread down all who in their hearts, if pressed, would take their stand against the way of Jesus. Those who, if allowed, would beat us down for righteousness, we're going to tread down by the power of this light. What it restores to you and me, it removes or takes away from the wicked. As they fall, you and I, it says, are going to go out like calves leaping from the stall. But now, doesn't that seem counterintuitive to the Christian heart and mission, one wonders? Doesn't seem right that we'd so delight in the condemnation of any soul. And so we need to see some details here. Reality check for us. Reality check. There are wicked people in the world. A lot of it we don't even see. We don't know. And as we've already seen that to include some very religious folks, let's point out here that Zechariah, it's another minor prophet, was one of Malachi's contemporaries. Maybe they were buddies. Zechariah, if you go to Matthew's Gospel, was murdered. He was slain in between the altar and the sanctuary. Do you get the picture here? A prophet of God in this day was slain in the heart of the temple compound. We talk about wicked and religion. Okay? So we need to be really careful that we don't whitewash wickedness. It's really in the world. Let's also note that you and I we are not the ones who turn the ungodly to ash, so to speak. That's very important. God is clear. Their fall is at His rising. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. I will repay. So we're going to tread down the wicked on the day that God acts, is what it says in the passage, when He establishes His justice. So, what does that mean for you and me today? Certainly, it means that we should live justly. We should live just lives. We should work for justice in our communities and in the world, and we should do justice. Absolutely, it means that. But vengeance is off the table. As we take that into our own hands now, what we're saying is that we're not going to live by faith in the reality of hell. Hell is a helpful doctrine when it comes to suffering everything we must in order to see someone saved. Faith in this day that's coming says, Lord, you have the vengeance. However much they hurt me, harm me, persecute me, cause me suffering, whatever it is, you have the vengeance. I leave it to you. I, on the other hand, while you have that, 
faithful labor in evangelism. As needed, you have their help. Help me, despite their awfulness and the hardness of my own heart, to love them and to persuade them to heaven. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's all Romans chapter 12 right there, and it is inexpressibly hard where you have been harmed. But that's the word of the Lord for it. Today is the day of salvation. So we're all about that. But the day is coming when judgment is going to be the rule and we'll be happy, according to the text, we're going to be happy to make no exceptions at that time. Judgment is going to come and we're going to be like, praise God. So then, to come full, the question for us is this. Is righteousness today? This is what you need to know. As you go out there, you leave here, you go out there, this is what we need to know. Is righteousness today worth it? That's Malachi's concern. People, as I said, chapter 3, end of chapter 3, have signed up to be God-fearers. Given this state of the world, will it be worth it to fear God and not man? Is it worth it to take God's stance on something like, say, abortion in an ethics paper when all of your classmates are going to differ? Is it worth it to take God's stance on sexual morality when all your peers are going to be highly experimental? Is it worth it to stand with biblical truth when other Christians and churches are rather careless with that truth? Is it going to be worth it to be an honest person? Like a biblically honest person, though it's to your hurt to be so. Is it going to be worth it to give and to give and to give generously, charitably, joyfully, sacrificially, though that also will be to your hurt? Is it going to be worth it to pray when pragmatism, forget prayer, we just got to go to work, shouts you in the other direction? Is it going to be worth it to repent? Let me ask you a question just there. Do y'all sin during a day? Is it characteristic of you to repent during a day? I know that I do and I don't. So is it going to be worth it to repent however it scrambles your reputation in front of other people? Is it going to be worth it to love souls that really hate you? Is it going to be worth it to love a church, to love a church and devote yourself to a church and commit to that church amid a more playful and non-committal generation? Is it going to be worth it? Is it going to be worth it to follow Jesus in this world from one decision to the next decision today? Our text gives us an emphatic yes. Though we may weep now, righteousness will have the last laugh. The righteous will end up on top. Distinct in their living, this day is going to prove it, that the best way to live today is the way that that day comes to approve, commend, and bless, and welcome into glory. Are you ready for it? Are you prepared for the coming of the risen King in His glory? God wants you to be. That's why we have Malachi 4. (laughs) And as he does, we arrive at verses 4 to 6, and really, again, 
the last words of the Old Testament's prophetic voice, and they're critical. They're instructions to prepare a people for the day of divine distinction. And they're just this. Maybe you thought it was going to be something amazing and awesome and grandiose, but it's just this. Be careful who you listen to. Listen to Moses. And listen to Elijah. And Elijah. We'll get to that in just a second. Now, to be sure, uh, these are instructions that are specific to Israel in light of Christ's first coming, His first advent. But to be equally sure then, they're no less valuable for you and me in light of Christ's second coming, His second advent. To listen to Moses and Elijah is just another way of saying, listen, verse 4, to the law. Listen to the law. And then, verse 5, listen to the prophets. Elijah, listen to the law, listen to the prophets. So God's the end to the Old Testament is, don't forget, remember, all I've told you from Genesis, Moses, to Malachi. Remember it. Don't leave my word behind. Bring the text with you. Get in the book and stay in the book. Why? Because the book will prepare you. It will ready you to recognize, realize, and receive the Lord incarnate when He arrives on the scene. You may say, wait a second. Christians are a New Testament people. Where is Jesus in the Old Testament? Are you saying really that Moses and the prophets, and on to John the Baptist, are you saying that they spoke about Jesus? Yes, exactly that. And I say that because Jesus said that. So, in John chapter 5, Jesus says this, and I quote, The Scriptures bear witness about me. Well, the New Testament hadn't been written at that time. <laughs> What's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. The Scriptures bear witness about me. A little bit further, he says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about... Come on now. Me. There you go. And a little bit later, it goes, If you do not believe his writings, the writings of Moses, how will you believe my words? Sorry, I tricked you. So also, in Luke 24, Jesus says this, Everything, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, and let's just throw in the Psalms, must be fulfilled. Written about me. After which He states the gospel of His life, death, resurrection, and ascension for the forgiveness of sins among any and all who believing in Him repent. Turn away from their sins and embrace Him. He says, that's the Old Testament. You're welcome. Friends, all Scripture read rightly is Christian Scripture. It directs us to Christ. As does, quote-unquote, Elijah. And not just as typical of God's prophetic office, but as the type of another prophet to which Malachi alludes. Right? The man Elijah, he's, he's long gone to glory. He's not returning to prepare the way for Jesus. But another reformational prophet like Elijah is. And that man, as the first prophet since Malachi went silent, 400 some odd years, and the last prophet prior to Jesus would do precisely that. On behalf of everyone who went before him, he'd have the privilege not just of preaching Christ, but of pointing at him <laughs> with his finger. Okay? Behold, the Lamb of God. There he is. The whole Old Testament right there who takes away the sins of the world. I'm not worthy you're so great, John. No. 
You think I'm great? You haven't seen anything yet. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his nasty sandal. He is mightier than I am. All I can do is baptize you with water. That's nothing. He will baptize you with the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. He will make a distinction, John preaches, gathering his wheat into his barn while burning the chaff with an unquenchable fire. And again, on the receiving side of John's finger in those words is Jesus. So whether we're talking about Moses or Elijah or John the Baptist, the guy like Elijah, we're being directed to Jesus as the Christ that you and I are to love with all our hearts and listen to with all we are. How can you be ready for the coming of Jesus now? Well, if you haven't, you must obviously have your heart turned from sin to this Savior. You need to be quick. You need to be quick. That time is unknown. You need to be quick to take God at His word. He is giving you time to resettle your eternity. Don't waste it. Don't reject the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's died on the cross. Right? He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. He's coming a second time. And your only hope of leaping like a calf instead of falling as quote-unquote ash is to take up your cross and follow that guy. It's to follow Jesus. It's to be justified this morning, forgiven of your sins, and counted righteous by a living faith in the now risen Lord. And won't you believe in Him? and be saved right now? But then what of us, dear ones? How shall we be a people prepared for this great and awesome day? The same way Israel was supposed to be, but by and large was not. Take God at His word. What? (laughs) What a resource. What a blessing to have the Word of God. (laughs) Take Him at it. He can't lie. He just tells you the truth. Remember the Scriptures. Live on the Bible. Live in the Bible. Bring the canon of Scripture with you. Let it reform every, every, every part of your life and let it direct you to Jesus. And once you're there, listen to Him. Give you Give Him your ears above anybody else. Believe in Him. Trust Him. Follow Him. And whatever it takes, aim to bring others with you. Oh, Lord. You see the end of the text? Maybe you saw it uh, when Jennifer was reading the call to worship for us. Oh, Lord, bring the fathers. Where are the fathers? Where are the hearts of men? Just as an aside, it's a pretty well-known fact that like on the mission field, the, the ratio of men to women is one guy for four ladies. Where are the hearts of men? Lord, bring the fathers. Turn their hearts. Fathers, bring your children. Labor to turn their hearts to Jesus. Righteous ones, Bring the religious lost. Just and wise people, sinners saved, bring the disobedient people to the righteous Savior of sinners. Part of your being ready for the coming of Christ is living a life of readying other people for the coming of Jesus. A weak zero is coming. When time is going to be no more. 
it's going to run out. And we need to be making ourselves ready. And we need to be aiming to ready others as well. In this series, we've seen that the kingdom is the Lord's, Obadiah, and thus he owns salvation. It belongs to him, Jonah. Also, judgment belongs to him, Nahum. Thank you, Pastor George. And that it behooves every person in the world then to get in his well-built house. Haggai, bit of Zephaniah there as well, among the righteous people of the unchanging Lord of love, Malachi. The books may have been little, but the messages, I pray, have been big. I pray no less for us today. We need to hear that Christ is coming. Christ is coming. And He's coming like a son of righteousness with healing in its wings. And what a day that is going to be for the heirs of His grace. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's living, it's active. Grant in your mercy towards every soul here this morning that it would live and act in us in ways that bring you the greatest glory. In Jesus' name we pray.